0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 16 as we move from the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, <clears throat> which really should be entitled The Bitter Older Brother. So we saw that last week. Today we're going to look at a new parable as we look at the shameless supervisor in Luke chapter 16. And as you turn there, and I want you to have your Bibles. Again, if you do not have a Bible, please let me know. I want to get one into your hands. But whether you have your tablet, your phone, or just a good old Bible, I encourage you always. It's good to take notes. We have no paper back there you can always use. But writing on your Bible is something that is treasurable and, and is beneficial to you. I want you to think about this for a moment as you're turning to Luke 16. As you and I are living in a time of uncertainty about, right, you know, about inflation, about our finances, about our economy, uh, you know, the, the election coming up, and who's going to take the House, who's going to take the Senate, what's going to change, how much worse is it's going to get as we drive by the gas pumps and we see it rise and rise and rise? Let me ask you, with knowing all that, if for some reason... You were to lose your job or social security or your pension and investments tanked or your ability to work some disability. What would you do? How would you survive? How would you face the upcoming turmoil that all of that might bring to your life? To whom would you go to for help and support? Or would despair and despondency just set into such a, a, a hard degree that you would not even know what to do next? For many of us, we may go to our families, right? You know, our family. We hope we have some family nearby that would help us. We might go to our friends, maybe, or to our church, Many of us look to the government to meet those needs, right? We now live in a time in a time in society where the government is the one who supplies all our needs, and we look to them. We want them to take care of us. But there is the question. Are you planning for that type of future today? Or are you, are, are you looking for what may happen when that day that you finally do retire? Or are you one of those that live for the adventure, Right? You're you're a person who survival. You just want to see what happens day to day, or or you someone who flies by the seat of your pants, or hopes that in the end it'll all pan out. Or if you've got a retirement like mine, which is the rapture, is that what you're waiting for and hoping in? Or maybe you're one that's a careful planner. You've been wise. You've been a good steward of all you've had. And you've worked hard at saving your money and investing smartly and living frugally. But here's the thing. How we think about money and our future says much about our Christian faith. How we think about money and our finances and our future determines much about how our strong or weak, our Christian faith may be. How we think about money actually determines our heart. See, it's how we think about money, right? Do we have a consumer-minded focus? We've talked about the poor. How we feel about it. How does it make us feel? Is that what we look to to bring us happiness? And how we choose to use it. Remember the heart, we look at the thoughts, the affections, and our will. How do we choose to use our money? Scripture has much to say about this issue. And it's profitable for telling us what is right, how we should think about money. It's good, it's good for reproof when we when we have bad uh, thoughts or feelings or choices about money. It tells us how to correct it so that we, we can correct it when we are have a wrong thinking. But it's also good to train us how to use it wisely and why God has given us money. As we come to Luke chapter 16, Jesus is still on the road to Jerusalem. He's preparing his disciples for his eventual betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, and then ascension back to the Father. Knowing his time is short, he's spending his last precious moments teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And as we come to today's passage, Jesus now turns his attention away from the Pharisees who he has been speaking about in, the, in chapter 15. And, and this time he, he focuses back on his disciples. He addresses them through the use of this parable of the shameless supervisor, or what we may think of, in your Bible may say the dishonest a manager." This time, the parable concerns a shameless super, supervisor who proves to be a crook, be a man of crooked character who is both creative and cunning in the art of self-preservation. And so from this, you and I can learn what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in those last moments of his life, of his life here on earth. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 2, it'll be here on on the monitor just to get us started. But again, I want to encourage you to be in your Bible. Jesus also said to his disciples, he's turned his attention away from the Pharisees. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Father, so help us as we take this uh, somewhat familiar parable and try to understand what is it that you're trying to teach your disciples. I mean, this must be important if it's one of the last things that you're wanting to share before your betrayal, before your crucifixion. There's some warnings in here that, that we need to understand. And even here 2,000 years later, We need to understand it not just for the sake of learning more information, but it's about transformation. There is something that you're wanting to do with our heart. You want to change the way we think. We want to change the things that we love, and you want to change the choices that we make so that we may present our bodies, our minds, our hearts a living sacrifice to you. So I pray that you open up our minds and hearts, clear us of of distractions. Let our minds be clear and let our hearts be open. And may your spirit have free reign to do that work. And may we rejoice and find joy in that. your name we pray. Amen. This parable takes place in the context of an agricultural business. The two characters are the rich man and the supervisor, the manager. The, the rich man owns a large piece of property and it sounds like he doesn't even live in the area that so he doesn't even know what's going on with his finances and he hires a manager to conduct business for him. <clears throat> Excuse me, the manager is in charge of all facets, it seems, of the business and he's expected to supervise and manage on behalf of and for the benefit of the owner, not for himself. However, it seems that the manager has not been faithful in his duties as the owner hears from others, not from his own ch- oversight, but from others, he hears that this man has been mis- mishandling his money. He's being cheated. It seems that the owner has not been fully aware of what his finances are, of what the manager has been going doing. He has not been checking up on him. So he delivers an ultimatum once hearing that word, and he says, tells the manager to get things in order before fire him. Now, you and I might question the wisdom of doing that, of asking a man who's already proven himself to be dishonest to get everything in order and then present it before him, and then you're fired. I'm not sure how, how that really works. Could you imagine that in your job today? Hey, could you finish out the weekend on Friday, you're fired? You know, you know, what, what kind of damage would someone do? However, we're going to see this man does some, but that's not the shocking part. On hearing his fate, the supervisor is first despondent, right? He's not sure of what he's going to do, but then he comes up with a clever plan. Look at uh, verse 3. Read silently with me as I read starting in verse 3. And so the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master has taken the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, this man's in my mind. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So this man has a a madness to his method. He knows what he's doing. His desire is, I'm not working, I'm not doing manual labor, and I'm not going to beg. But I'll do. I'm going to make some friends so they'll take me in and take care of me. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Why can't we have creditors do that for us today? How much do you owe? Well, this, well, you know what? Just write down a new bill. I'm going to try that uh, this week, see how well that works. I'll let you know next week as uh, someone can, can bail me out. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, I owe a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. Now this shameless supervisor comes up with a creative and cunning plan to secure his future. Now, again, does he have the right and authority to do so? Yes. Yes, yes. He says, go and account. He, 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 he says, go ahead and do take care of it. I mean, this, this, this owner is not very smart in doing this. Now, I could say, is it an ethical thing to do? Then we might answer, no, it probably wasn't an ethical thing to do it. But as we're going to see, the manager actually looks at this as in a different way than you and I do. Recognizing his physical limitations, <coughs> Excuse me, he cannot do manual labor. And knowing that no one will want to hire someone with his reputation, he uses his still existing authority to cut deals with his boss's customers. Now, most likely he's not bringing the, the, the owner more in debt. He's most likely cutting out any interest that's going on. Uh, so he's probably getting back what he put into it. Uh, again, that's just my subject. You know, it's just my, 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 my opinion. It's not scripture. He offers them a deal that they cannot refuse. And who would? I mean, if somebody says, hey, you have the authority to do this, then yeah, then take it. The character of this manager is described as shameless, hence why I use the word. He points out that this shameless supervisor, Jesus points out that this shameless supervisor was both shady, selfish, and shrewd. You see this on the monitor. He was shady in that he mismanaged that which didn't belong to him. And money, it didn't belong to him. He was supposed to take care of it on on behalf and for the benefit of someone else. But he was shady. He didn't do things the right way. He was mismanaging money. He was selfish in that he only thought of himself. He didn't think about, well, how can I get the best return now for my owner? I've been caught, right? I'm sorry, but you know what? I better take care of him. So maybe he might change his mind. Maybe he might give me a lower position, but he doesn't do that. He just thinks of himself. But then he was shrewd in that he came up with a clever plan to secure his future. He was shady, he was a shameless man who was selfish and shrewd. Now, so far, everything in this parable sounds familiar to many of us as it did the disciples. <clears throat> Probably many of us can think of people who were shady, selfish, and shrewd in their dealings, right? You ever got into a car used car a lot? Oh, I'm sorry. Pre-owned car lot. this would probably be something that you would say, yeah, that man is a shady, selfish, shrewd person, right? Or maybe let's say the old stereotype of them. I don't want to, if, you, if you're in the pre-owned business, please forgive me. But I will take a d- good deal if you have one. So here's the thing as we look at, uh, this is familiar. We all have understood. Maybe there's times where we've been an owner of something and someone has mismanaged us or they've treated us in this way. Or maybe we've done it ourselves at work. We've been shady, selfish, and shrewd in the way that we use our time cards. Maybe the tools we might borrow from work or the way that we might fudge time sheets or how we might take lunch, long lunch, get to work late, leave early. We recognize this, right? I'm not accusing anyone of any of those things, but we understand it, right? However, in verse 8, Jesus concludes with a statement that would be shocking to everyone who's listening and to you and I today, because this is one of those parables that's been one where people say, uh, what in the world is Jesus saying here? Look at verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now this actually, <clears throat> I shouldn't say this. This is gonna get us into weeds. But there is, some, there is some debate of who this is. Is the master the owner or is the Master Jesus? So, who's commending this man? And to be honest, I'm not gonna come out on either way, because in either way, it still is a shocking statement. What we see here is the man is commended for his shrewdness. He concludes with the second, for the Master commended the dishonest man for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light that is a shocking statement what in the world is going on jesus commends the actions of this manager this supervisor this shameless man this shrewd and and selfish excuse me in way that he worked this doesn't make sense instead of commendation the disciples were expecting what condemnation that's where that's the nice thing about parable parables are always shocking right it always calls for a response of those that are hearing this is the this is the the twist in the story instead of commendation the disciples were expecting condemnation of this shrewd dude however we must point out that Jesus is not commending the man for his dishonesty or his selfishness but the way in which he secured his future. Shrewd, in our, in our words, typically denotes some type of negative connotation. However, in the world, the word actually means cunning, clever, wise, showing presence of mind. A uh, practical skill, discernment, and actually intelligent. So shrewd in this way is actually a a a, uh, a positive word. It's a, it's an it's a it's a what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, when you're telling somebody nice, what? A compliment. My goodness. <clears throat> this is a compliment to this man. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus says we should. Emulate what's happening here. He was a man of crooked character. There's no mention of his, of his redeeming himself through repentance or even a display of worldly grief. It's not like he, when he mismanaged, he made it right. He actually kind of, in some ways, made it worse. He's not sorry for how he mismanaged the business entrusted to him. Yet he is praised for his ingenuity. In using his ability to make friends and allies through offering to lower their debt. In verse 9, Jesus gets to the teaching point of the parable. Why is Jesus commending this man? Why is he praising him? Well, look at verse 9. And I tell you, this is Jesus speaking. Make friends for yourselves by the means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails unrighteous wealth, that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What a puzzling statement. Amen? Anyone else? Anyone who's ever read this? and What in the world is going on here? The ESV Study Bible comments on this portion that unrighteous wealth prefers the way in which the pursuit of money may be involved. It's the way that you and I think. It's the way that we have an affection for it. It's the way in which we choose to use our money. In other words, they say unrighteous means acquiring wealth by taking advantage of others. Scripture tells us that's a way in which we are not to make our money. We're not to increase wealth by, by doing it on the backs of others. Unrighteous uh, desires in the use of wealth for personal gratification and selfish uh, purposes rather than caring for others. So it's it's using it for our own purposes, selfishness. Then it's also the corrupting influence of wealth that often leads people into unrighteousness. Those warnings of scripture are to be careful about our desire for money. You see, Jesus recognizes that using money or earthly wealth is a good, wise way to make friends and allies. So he's encouraging them as that you have given, been given money, you have been giving wealth, and here in America we've been given immense blessings in that area. He says you should be using that to make friends and allies. Theologian Liefeld comments that the worldly wealth can be wisely given a way to do good. Hence why I asked that question. If everything were to fall in your life, who would you go to? Who would be the ones in which you have used your wealth or used what God has given you to make friends and allies who would then return the favor in your dark days? Jesus is wanting them to think. He's, he's getting into their mind here. And he's going to zero in here on how they think and use and think of money. And so we need to recognize, Jesus says, you need to use your money... Your wealth in a way that 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 not only glorifies God but is for the good of your fellow man. Again, the ESV Study Bible writes that believers who use their wealth and possessions generously in this way, by helping others, give evidence of their faith and commitment to God and of understanding that God will give eternal rewards to those who use their generous or who are generous in the use of their resources. He is entrusted to them. In other words, he's saying, you know, the world is more shrewd. They understand that that if you are generous to others, then they will return. And what he's saying is sons of light, as children of God, we need to have the same type of mindset, but in a little different way as we're going to see than the world thinks. So Jesus essentially is just encouraging the prudent use, the prudent use of material wealth that's the question how do you think of your money how do you think of your assets those things that you have in life theologian thomas schreiner writes that using wealth as a means to secure their future is characteristic of the people in this world they understand that they need to say they need to invest they need to use it for a good purpose or for a purpose that pays dividends in the same way, it is wise for Christians, the sons of light, to be prudent in generosity towards others. And so we need to understand that. And we've talked about this before. God has called us to have a generous heart. Why? Because God himself is generous to us. When you and I exhibit and demonstrate and display generosity, whether or not, it's not just our money, but it could be our time, our energy. It could be the way that we pour ourselves into someone's life. That's like, that's imitating God. That's the character of God. But then Jesus continues to warn them in verse 10. If you are not generous, he says, the one who is faithful in very little, look at verse 10. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. So in other words, if you give someone a little one and they're faithful in that, then that's someone you can entrust with a little bit more. And one who is dishonest and very little is also dishonest in much. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? If you can't handle this much, then why should God give you much more? And that's something that I've always taken. You know, you know I've complained many times, you know, boy, Lord, I wish you had just given us more resources. But I think, well, have you used the resources I've already given you? If you've squandered this, why should I give you more? And so many times we need to be careful of our own minds, our own thoughts, our own hearts. For grumbling against them is grumbling against God. He goes on to say in verse 12, And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? We understand this. If I give somebody something to use or whatever and they break it, tear it up, and I receive it in bad condition, do you think I'd be more likely to lend them something else? No. If you give money to someone, they all pay you back and they refuse to do so, or they don't, they, you're, you're less likely to help them. So it's just a, a common sense, but it's a biblical principle. Pastor John MacArthur points out three things that Jesus is teaching them this morning. If you're taking notes, here, are, here they are here's the thing that you and I need to understand, that everything that we have belongs to God, right? And we're only to be faithful stewards. Scripture says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof is the world's and those who dwell therein. In First Corinthians, he says, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Haggai, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. It doesn't matter if you went and found it in the ground, who put it there in the first place? For every beast of the forest is mine, he says, the cattle on a thousand hills. I think as we as Christians many times, as disciples of Christ, we have forgotten or suppressed the truth that everything we have belongs to God. When you get that check from your boss, from your owner, whatever, from a vendor, what not, And you get that at the end of two weeks, a week, whatever it is. And you say, look what I've earned. But you have to recognize it's God who has given that. He may not have signed that check, but it is from God. There is nothing that you have that does not from God. But you say, but no, i got this on my own creativity, my own ingenuity, my own intelligence, my own abilities. Who has given those to you? Yeah. Who's given you every breath that you're taking, even at this every moment? Every inhales, I can't even say the word, you know what I'm saying. Every breath is from God. At his very thought, he could take that away from you in a moment's instant. We need to recognize that everything we have belongs to God. So let me ask you, is that how you think about the money you have? Is that how you think about your resources, your time, your energy, your children, your family? That it belongs to God. And you're just called to be a faithful steward. Some of us have been shameless supervisors mishandling the very things that God has given us. Number two, money is to be used for the good of the kingdom, ourselves, and others. So God has given us all things, whether it's finances, our intelligence, our health, whatever we have, he's given it first for the good of the kingdom. That is which will prevail. It is the kingdom that is immortal. That is for eternity. It is that which will last forever. Forever. We are to advance the kingdom of God first. That's why we said in our our passage, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? Don't worry about all these other things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then our money then is used for ourselves, for our families. We need to make sure that we do take care of it. He says you're worse than a heathen if you do not take care of your family. And not just your money. Let me talk to you. If you're not spending quality time with your children, you're robbing God and others. If you're not spending good quality time with your spouse. If you're not spending time in worship with others. You are robbing God. You are robbing the kingdom. But then it's also it's for the good of others. So we use all that first for the kingdom of God. Then we use it for ourselves and those who are in our immediate family. Then we use it for others. That's what we, do. we do good to the household of God, God first. And then to others. But many times we have it so backwards. We have uh, we have ourselves right then we might have God or we might have others or sometimes we there's people who put others others before their families others before their marriage others before all other things I've been guilty of that of doing good to others while then letting my own family kind of struggle a little bit and that's not something I'm proud of and the thing is, is that it was that self-righteous. See, I'm helping someone. But yet, I was robbing God. I was robbing the kingdom. I was robbing my family. Helping them, but at what cost? And so you and I need to consider this in here. And then thirdly, or let me give you a couple. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your crops. Let's put scripture speak, not rob. He says in Proverbs, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling. That's, that's for yourself. But, but a foolish man devours it. God gives us this to take care of. Whoever gives to the poor will not be in need, but he who hides his eyes will receive many curses. So we are called to give to others. But how many times do we just hide our eyes to the poverty needs of others? And so there is a balance. I, I don't always know what that balance is. So that's before your conscience and before God. But let us recognize that money is not for my own purpose. And we think of that, right? Governor Newsom, he's such a man of generosity. He's going to give us more of your taxpayers' money, and each of us is going to get a portion of it, some a little bit, some a little bit uh, more, some not at all. I don't know what his criteria is at this moment. But whether it's $350 or or $1,500 for those of your family, are you already thinking now how you can spend it for yourself? That's usually how we are, right? Tax fundry comes in. What can I do with it? We typically don't think, well, how can I use this money that I was not counting on for the kingdom of God? How can I use this to bless my family? How can I use this to help others? We typically don't think that way. I don't. That's not my normal way of thinking, right? We've got to train ourselves to this way. And then number three, do not let money... Absert the place of God in your life. This is so important. For in Luke chapter 16, we're back in Luke 16. Look at verse 13. Jesus warns him, no servant can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the others. You cannot serve God in money. This shameless supervisor, this dishonest manager... He was serving himself rather than his manager or his owner. We're guilty of the same thing. We need to realize that many times, just as we've talked about how government has replaced God in the public sphere of that, we look to government, right, for our savior to be our provider, our supplier. Uh, What was the other one? I can't remember the other one. Uh, Savior. We look to money, right? right? One day my ship will come in one day I'll get this. Only if I had this, then I can do this. It's not so much the the money. It's not the paper money. It's not the the plastic card. It's, It's what it can get me. It's what it can do for me. And many times we have put money or other things, let it upsert the place of God in our lives. Jesus, in his last times, he, in his last moments there on earth with him, he wants them to understand this. You cannot let this happen. You cannot serve God and serve money. You can't serve God and just your, or, or just your faith. You, you, there's got to be a balance in how you live this out. And God must always be number one. You know, that's the, the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And we need to recognize it. We should probably start our morning each and every day with that. Maybe when we go to Amazon or something else like that, before we hit push on that cart, we ought to say, hey, Lord is one. How does, this, how does this advance the kingdom of God? How does this serve me and my family? And how does this serve others? Maybe that might change some things. In summary, but not the end of the message. In summary of this parable, we are recalled to be faithful in small things. Trusting that God will be faithful and rewarding us with more. Not that we are to give to get, but that we place money in its rightful place. Again, Schreiner notes that if we do not use the money God gives us in this life, we will not be entrusted with more in the future. And I would say that with your time, with your energy, with your family, with your ministry, so on and so forth. We had said many times that God expects us to be cheerful, generous, sacrificial, and intentional givers. You've heard me speak of this again. Let me give it to you once again. God has called us to be cheerful givers. He has called us to be generous givers. He has called us to be sacrificial givers. It ought to cost us something and it ought to be intentional as you have purposed in your hearts. Jesus here is is, is warning his disciples not to adopt the mindset of the world that sees money as the key to happiness, as the wherewithal, right? That's what's happening with this shameless supervisor. He needs to take care of himself. How often are we tempted by the amounts in the lottery to buy a ticket or to begin daydreaming about what we could do if we won? I'm I'm not immune to that. I drive by Vons over here and I see at the the water shop where I get water. Wow, this is it's $455 million. That one's uh, $407 million. Oh, that one's $10 million. Man, it's 2 bucks a ticket. Boy, what I could do for the kingdom of God if God would give me $455 million plus whatever the taxes are. You know, I could pay the taxes and I wouldn't be mad. I'd still wind up with, what, over $200 million. You know what I could do with that? i got a list, by the way. I could share it with you. off outside. I've had these dreams. I've had these aspirations. What can I do for my family? How can I set it up? That's generational wealth, my friends. That's not just a, a, just a ship coming in, man. That's, that's, a, that's everything. That's the Navy coming in. But all that does is exposes my heart and the ways in which I have not put Christ first. We often look to money to supply our needs, desiring more of it. If I only had more. But you know what you would do if you had more? You spend it. Even more in debt. You buy more stuff. What's that? Buy more stuff. buy more stuff. You may recall the parable of the ritual who declared after a bountiful harvest that he must tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Now, I know many of you haven't said that, come home to that, but you might've followed with these words, relax, eat, and be merry. It was payday. He had a worldly mindset. He was all about himself. He never once considered sharing and being generous with his goods. You may recall that, You can go look at that message if you weren't here for that one. However, in the parable, God condemned that rich fool by saying, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Of course, it's difficult to give generously and sacrificially at times. We are worried that we will not have enough for our own family, for our own selves. We might run out of money. We might run out of means. Yet Jesus calms those fears by declaring in Luke 12, see it here on the monitor, where he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions. Give to the needy, Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. Where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. At this point, Jesus has shared what he wants the disciples to understand. Money has its place, but it must be in its rightful place. And you must use your money in the right way. So now as we go on in Luke chapter 16, verse 14... Jesus turns his attention back to the Pharisees who have been listening in on this conversation. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to him, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Thank God for the Pharisees. They were already ready to be an object lesson. Luke points out that the Pharisees were lovers of money, meaning that they were guilty of breaking not only the 10th commandment concerning covetousness, but also the first commandment regarding idolatry. Declaring themselves to men to be the epitome of righteousness, they were in fact hypocrites, hypocrites. For God knows their hearts. You recall that Paul warns Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil, or all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, this desire for money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Instead of listening and learning from Jesus, what did they do? They ridiculed Jesus once again. Knowing their hearts, Jesus accuses them of hypocrisy in trying to justify themselves. However, God is not fooled. He knows the heart motivation of all men. They, as all of us, are exposed before God. You may be saying amen to me this morning. You may say, saying, well, I agree with what you're saying. I'm on the side of Jesus on this one. But let me tell you, there will be one day where God will expose your heart the writer of Hebrew, excuse me, says this here on the monitor, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of the spirit of the joints and the marrows, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He knows what you truly think. There is no hiding from him and no creature, he says, is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We must be careful that we do not adopt the world's mindset concerning money. Let us not be hypocrites who say, yes, I'm about advancing the kingdom of God. Then I'm about taking care of myself and my family and then others. But yet in our spending, in the way that we use our day time, and all the things that we do, that will expose what you truly find important in life. We must not be shameless supervisors of the talents, the abilities, and the gifts the Father has given to us. We must not be guilty of mishandling, mismanaging, or misappropriating all that God has given us to advance the kingdom, to provide for ourselves, and to care for others. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God is about you enjoying this life. He has given you all things that you may enjoy him, right? To to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Money is included in that. The gifts that money uh, buys is including in that. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, those who have money. To be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And I I don't think that's so much talking about the earthly future, but but heavenly future. And that's what he's talking about, eternal rewards. If you're using your money to advance the kingdom, to share the gospel, to save babies, and and to, to restore families... Our desire is that by using our wealth, our finances, your tithings and donations, that others may come to Christ. And that when I'm in heaven, as I walk through those gates, they are welcoming because we were generous with our time, our energy, our money. That's what he's talking about, our eternal rewards. That they may take hold of true life. That's what we want for each and every person. Not just to give them a financial band-aid but to share them with Christ and tell them the ministry that God is reconciling man to himself. Amen? For that's where you and I are. Which leads me to our last point. I know you're you're wondering. Here it is, number four. One day God will require from us an accounting. Just like this shameless supervisor got away with it for a while, it didn't last. Word gets around. Turn if you would to Romans, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, if you would. In Romans chapter 14, verse 12, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul warns us: so each of us will one day give an account of himself to God. There is an accounting. You may be a shady, selfless serving man or woman, but one day you will give an account. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 10. This is speaking about the church, but I think the principle follows on because you and I are to advance the kingdom of God. He says, according to the grace of God given me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon that. So it's like you come and someone builds a foundation, then people come and build on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation that than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we have been given, given a firm foundation, as children of God, Jesus Christ. But look at verse twelve. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will be made fat, manifest, or be made known. For the day, you see, most uh, modern translations, that day is capitalized because it's speaking about the day when Christ comes and the day of judgment. He says that day will disclose it, that day of reckoning, that day of accounting, because it will be revealed by fire. And there's that that's given us a, a mind picture, a word picture. So that fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And you and I can understand gold, precious jewels, what happens when it's at fire, right? It it burns out the impurities and then you can shape it into something. But if it's wood, hay, and straw, you can imagine what happens to that in fire. Verse 14, for if work that anyone has built and the foundation survives, he will receive reward. And verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Some of us may give uh, a portion of Jesus and it will have uh, probably, this will probably be a, a little bit of both, but you're giving either uh, Jesus a, a portion of gold, silver, and jewel that's been uh, uh, purified and, and melted down, or we're going to give him a bowl of ashes. Most likely, all of us are going to give him a little bit of portion of both if we're reality in life. But he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. So it's not saying you can lose your salvation, but you say there's a day of accounting. Everything that you do will be judged and be accounted for. If you've been a shameless supervisor, that will not pass muster. You will have a true accounting. The books will come through. However, here's the joy of the gospel, right? Is that we will be saved. In the end, I am not saved by my works. We're saved by works, But it's the works of Christ, not of my own. And so with it, I would share today. If you were to stand before heaven and he were to say, why should I let you in heaven? What would your answer be? If it's because I've been a good person, I've given to others, I've helped the homeless, I've done soup kitchens, I've, I've read my Bible, I've been to church, I was a member of a church. Let me tell you, none of that has any eternal value unless it's found in the work of Jesus Christ. So I would call the... To repent of that sin knowing that all your good works are nothing but filthy rags however because Christ died for us he purchased our salvation he has redeemed us he has transformed us from the, or transferred us from the domain of darkness into the domain of light we are now sons of light if you put your trust in him and not yourself I would call you that this morning for there is the gospel as well you and I do have some gold, silver, jewels, but our lives have also been messy. There's been times where we have been shameless and we have mishandled, misappropriated, mismanaged what God has given us. There's times we have blown it with our families, with our wives, at work, with our money. We have the scars, but yet through the gospel we're still saved. All he wants you to know is that, listen, Do not continue to go down this road. Have the mindset that glorifies God is good for you and good for others. So let us be wise, shrewd stewards of all that God has given us for the glory of God and for the good of others that they may see our good works and give glory to God, our Father who is in heaven. That when we reach into heaven, we can see that our use of our money, the use of our time, the use of our energy has gained eternal friends, including our spouses, our children, our family, and our friends. Amen? Amen. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Let us not be uh, us shameless supervisors, but let's use all that he has given us shrewdly in a wise way. Amen?